Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name is Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more. Plank the second to help you write better. And plank the third to help you be a little bit happier. As you do those things to that end, sometimes I have guests on and I talk about writing and the difficult and sometimes exciting and oft exasperating but never erotic process of making a book or making stories sometimes I get listeners to send in their first pages and I give them feedback on how I think they can make those pages even better or suck less and sometimes it's just me with a microphone talking about my life in books and whatever thoughts have happened to um, crawl into my ear hole while I was sleeping and uh, tickle the different nodes on my brain that make me want to record a new episode. This is one of those episodes... I've dubbed them a writing rambles. That's always been the um, the, the canonical name for them. Uh, originally, I think it was the very, very first season of Death of a Thousand Cuts. I like did an episode where I was just like, hey, I'm going to go completely mad and just turn the mic on and talk about something and, and get a few things that are on my mind down. And I ended up passing into a kind of fugue state and recording for, I think it was like something like two hours and then my like wife knocked on the door and said, "Tim, like we're we're we're, go- we're going out. <laughs> what, what are you doing?" And I, I was like, "Is that the time? Oh my goodness me!" And uh, and and based on that experience, for some reason, I thought that, that sounds like a really really great way to make the podcast. And so I'm going to continue doing that. And and here I am now, talking to you as if I've never learned my lesson. Uh, But no, I enjoyed it and I had positive feedback. And so this episode, just in case you're new to the podcast, in which case, welcome. If you're not, welcome back, is just me talking into the microphone unedited about stuff that's on my mind. And the reason I'm recording this is is partly because I enjoy doing it and also because I've done five episodes to start this season now that are just me talking to other writers And I really love doing those episodes and I get a lot out of them. But I'm also very aware from audience feedback that that, that people actually do enjoy listening to me. It sounds like I'm either being falsely modest or humble bragging, like going, but I know what you listen to. You listen to this podcast for me, right? Uh, But obviously I am, I I can't deny that I am the one constant of all the episodes and, and sometimes people like a little bit of space for me to talk about stuff as well. I know, I know, I know sort of people's favourite bits are when I look at first pages. I'm sort of super aware of that as well. So it's not just me. Uh, but that as, as much as, you know, people enjoy me talking to other authors and uh, doing those interviews, I think particularly people uh, like it when I can check in and talk about writing a little bit and talk about what I'm up to. So that's why I'm doing this episode, because it's been a while. And obviously, it's been some of my updates were a bit spotty at the beginning of the year. There was a big gap where I wasn't putting the podcast out. And then I came back and I've sort of uh, darkly alluded to having had a difficult month last month, which was definitely true. And also, I've been talking about, but just not talking about it very much because I didn't want to take up too much time in the intros, the fact that I've got a book coming out in May. So at the time of recording, it's March. So in two months, which I'm, I'm just going to step straight into the uh, awaiting 
uh, cliche banana cream pie that's going to smack me right in the face and say, that's come round fast, hasn't it? Doesn't time move quickly? Uh, but the book is now, I've just signed off on the, f- I, I, maybe I do, I'm just, I think if it's all right, I'm going to talk a bit about that. Well, even if it's not, I mean, you can't, it's too late now, the episode's recorded. You can't, un- unless while I'm talking about this, talking, set, recording this, you hear a clattering, there's like a thumping at the door, the shattering of glass, and then a kind of various guys dressed in SWAT gear rappel through the ceiling and drag me away from the microphone screaming, you cannot stop me from talking about my own book. But it just seems relevant. It's my experience of being in the publishing industry and doing writing professionally. And so I hope it could be helpful, but also because I want to talk about it because I, you know, I'd like to, I guess, get the word out that my book's coming out. So I've written a book over the over the past few years, I worked on a book that that's ended up having the name Coward, why we get anxious and what we can do about it. And it's about my experiences, which I've talked on the show a lot about of dealing with mental illness. In my case, it was, it's been particularly anxiety and panic attacks. And I just decided to write a book about it that, I mean, that's, is that true? Come on, Tim, let's think about this. Okay, so I'd been working on some fiction. I've been working on a novel about goblins. And I wrote a ton of it really quickly and really enjoyed writing it. And then I looked back over it and I was like, I just don't. It was written in first person and it was written in a kind of attempt at like Georgian street. Georgian London street slang kind of mixed with the fantasy world and when I was writing it I quite enjoyed writing it and then when I look back at it I'm like I just something about this just aside from the fact I couldn't quite stick the landing of what I wanted the climax of the book to be I just felt like this is like voice novels are a high wire act and if you stack it if, if you make if you put one foot wrong the whole thing collapses like you have to do it really well and I was just like I'm I'm not sure that this is that I'm pulling this off now n- sort of future me me now would look back and say yeah I mean like any first run at a book you know, you can say a book is a high wire act, right? But it's a high wire act that you're performing with the benefit of multiple safety nets and a time machine. Like you can put a foot wrong, tumble off the the high wire and then go back in time and fix that, right? That's that's the nature of a first draft. Like if you're putting yourself in the position of like, if I do not do a note perfect first draft, then the sensible, modest thing to do is pop that into a drawer and never look at it again and go, now I, I, I flew too close to the sun thinking I could write a book. Best I, I bury it in concrete in the North Sea. Like, what? Just edit it. But I just, I lost faith in it. Like, I really liked it when I started writing it. And then when I went back to it, I didn't, I just had gone off it and I couldn't quite figure out how I wanted to climax to go like I couldn't get the characters into I hadn't really really honestly truthfully worked out what the big bad sort of plan was that started to feel a bit sort of shaky in my head 
and I've read published fantasy novels that those kind of problems did not appear to stop the author writing it putting it out and an audience buying it you know the, the implausibility poorly worked out denouements uh setups that aren't paid off characters who speak in an unconvincing way um threats that are introduced and then are dealt with almost perfunctorily logic gaps all of those things have happened in books that have done very well it's just it's it's just like i I just i got stuck in my head and i think also you know my my agent i showed her an early bit of it and she was very sort of kind about it and said you know was certainly not dismissive of it but also i felt like it, it wasn't but i still needed to finish the book right to to have something to show her properly so she could judge it right so that was the bottom line is you know she was sort of tentative but encouraging and i couldn't finish it i did i just felt like i couldn't and it was a time when she'd also made the sort of off-hand remark that non-fiction seemed to be doing better for lots of people than fiction like people seemed to be buying non-fiction and I, I'd started out my writing career in non-fiction my published writing career doing we can't all be astronauts and I just thought I would quite like to write something about anxiety it is it is an area that I I, I live it every day And I have a st- I'm, I'm a stakeholder in the world of mental health and anxiety. And I've had a few psychologists and neuroscientists on, on this very podcast. I mean, I think key among them would probably be people like uh, uh, Jamie Pennebaker, who came on to talk about expressive writing and how that can affect people's well-being and mental health and he talked a bit about his research into the secret life of pronouns is his other book that he did that's just a terrific collection of interesting thought-provoking uh research but he talked about sort of the therapeutic impact of expressive writing and the certain type of autobiographical writing that seems to have a positive impact on people. And I'd also spoken to the to uh, the procrastination researcher, Dr. Tim Pitchell. And that was an episode that had really resonated with a lot of listeners. And I was also just enjoying the conversations I had with other authors about mental health, like the episode where I chatted with Byron Vincent and we talked about his life, his experiences growing up and how they had sort of intersected with the person that he is 
to create sort of his his experiences of sort of mental illness and being in the system and uh, you know poverty and how you know Britain is how we deal with people across the and I just I really like I I really like life writing I really like talking about mental health and all those things made me crossed with the fact that I was just like and this is the sort of like obviously we want to create a self-mythologizing version of our writing where or at least I sometimes feel that impulse where the every book is a sort of organic process that is unyoked from the sort of uh, grubby harness of commerce every book sort of arises organically and we we it was always it was always an inevitability right that we were going to write it uh it was it was something that we were always going to do because we had to write because we were driven to do so but the truth the truth is i also knew and some not everyone knows this but certainly in the uk for i guess writers who are i wouldn't consider myself established but for most writers if you haven't got a book deal and you want to write a piece of fiction a novel length fiction you write the entire novel and then you try to sell it unless you've got a multi-book deal in which case you're future books won't you know you might have given them a pitch or something but those won't but for most of the most of the time you write the novel and then you ship it you shop it around publishers with non-fiction you almost always do a pitch and like a first chapter you say this is what the book's going to be about here's a chapter plan of what's going to be in the rest of the book and here's a, a sample chapter and then you shop it around and then you get and then you get the first chunk of your money if someone buys it before you've written the rest of the book right so this was attractive to me because i thought well i can probably dash something out pretty quick because i've been working on this novel i'm not happy with it maybe i'll take a break from writing it i i will i will bodge together some bullshit about anxiety and look, if someone wants to buy, pay me to write it, go on, then I'll write it. That was that was part of the way that I kind of talked myself <laughs> into writing it. That's awful, isn't it? But it's probably true, you know, to an extent. I, I think then when I started writing it, I was like, fuck. <laughs> oh, I'm writing about my own life. Oh, this isn't quite so funny. And... I've got to do some research like I can't it turns out I can't you, I can't just wing it I can't just like get by on my native wit and vulnerable charm and kind of wink at the audience and go it brains there eh? everyone's got one no one knows how they work so I'm Tim Clare I sometimes get scared I get scared like a here's a piece of toilet humor I'm going to talk about diarrhea anyway that's anxiety. So to summarise, anxiety. A land of contrasts. Bye. Like, you can't do that. You've got to give You've got to give some content. And I think there probably are, like, very talented essayists and polemicists who can sort of just sit down and very entertainingly be a raconteur, like, wax lyrical on a subject. They don't really have to do any research. Like, they've got a bunch of stuff in their heads, you know, literary references, 
experiences from a life well lived and they, and they can kind of like sit down and knock out a book of essays and it's work but they can sort of do it in isolation they can sort of do it by just giving themselves focus and time and and it kind of flows out of them and i i, I don't mean to to diminish that i'm sure there's people who can do that 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 is the end point of a bunch of training and practicing and doing that a lot and doing broadcast work speaking extemporaneously becoming an expert in the fields that they're interested in becoming entertaining you know in the same way that yeah maybe someone who's got an you know a, a life of you know if you've done a lot of stand-up gigs probably you can get thrown into a situation and you've got enough backup material and enough experience of being in the moment and a riffing off stuff that's happening in the room that you can just pluck 10 minutes from your back catalogue and probably do a reasonable job on stage, right? Like, you you can probably make something out of it or at least do a bit of crowd work if your background's in comparing or something like that. I imagine that the same is true of writing certain types of non-fiction when it's kind of essay-based. Uh, but, but this wasn't that, and it never was that I was sort of proposing that I was going to go out and speak to researchers that I was going to you know contact neuroscientists like I'd had on the show I think like that was part of it as well as doing the podcast and realizing that a surprising number of people were willing to speak to me I was like this is nuts like if these if if I can like find if I can look up research papers from like the actual world of science like maybe this isn't a revelation to everyone else but it's like i can go on i can look think of a subject like the neuroscience of anxiety i can like go to the, I, I i literally went to our local library in norwich the forum got out their big like text hardback textbook it's like a it's bigger than a four i don't think it's a five but it's like a big hardback one with color illustrations it was called like i think it's like neuroscience volume five get it out open it up read the chapter on anxiety find like the names of researchers that are named as key in their field in the textbook find the ones who are still alive and then like email them and go like this per this person is named in the like history of key discoveries in neuroscience in the textbook oh he's still alive shall i e i'll email him will you speak to me i'm writing a book now there's no books been sort of agreed upon yet i i'm just a, a random person with an email address i don't even have a professional sounding email address it's the it's the email address that came up while with 20 years ago while i was in university named after the first novel that i tried writing called joshu replied like it's 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 such a stupid email address it might as well it might as well be like sexy boy 69 or something and i'm writing to these researchers who get like hundreds of thousands of dollars in research grants and i'm like can you speak to me about anxiety trying to play down my own mental illness because I, because that's the other thing is i want to sound i i found that when i was starting to speak to people i i, I sort of aggressively wanted to sound not mentally ill although like i i was and shouldn't be ashamed of that but obviously you know you don't want to be 
you don't want people to worry for you, right? Like, you don't want to go, hi, hi, I'm seeking answers about my mental illness. I heard that you study the area. Would you be willing to speak to me? It's like, they might, you know, it, they're not they're not a free counselling service and they might be worried. <laughs> so instead, I try to sound, oh, gosh. I Actually, no, my emails are, you know, you'll hear a lot about how to phrase emails and, People have given me so much advice over the years and I was told like if you're pitching to a, a newspaper you should be like really curt with them. Hi, pos feet. I'd like to do a, an article on subject X. I uh, I, th- I would do a, a, the topic on because blah, blah, blah. And this is why it's newsworthy. And I should write it because this. That's it. Bye. Like you should be really short to give the... Rather than going, I should you know, like giving your whole CV because people who are professional freelancers just as the, 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 the reasoning I was told was like professional freelancers like to send pictures all the time. They send them really short. They act as if, if you act as if you already know that person and you're sending pictures out like this all the time to the extent that you don't even write, here's a possible feature I could do for your newspaper. You just put pos feet like, oh yeah, that was my first, my first feature I got published in the Guardian was an opinion piece in 2005 about publishing about writing uh and it was an awful it was an awfully snooty piece as well i mean like i I don't disagree with a lot of it but i was trying to be like such a tosser about it which i I suppose made it perfect as a kind of like piece of opinion journalism because it was it was genuine punditry it was like really just trying to rub people up the wrong way but i said I put the I put the phrase "pos feet" in the in the subject box. I'd never had anything published in a newspaper before, but I put the subject box "pos feet" and I put in the name of the features editor on of the of the Guardian Review as as if to basically because someone had told me their four line formula for getting features accepted, and and I just thought it just makes it me sound like I'm sending out so many possible features all the time because I'm a freelancer yeah that I just can't be bothered to write possible feature I just don't have time for those extra eight or so letters those that's too many keystrokes for me darling I sent it out and within 10 minutes I got an email back going yeah (laughs) yeah here's how much we'll pay you to do that can you get it in by next Friday and I was just like this has to be a joke what the fuck it was that it was that easy all the time i didn't really justify why i was the right person to write it i i just i i I just tied it to some event or something that had happened in the news and you just think this has got to be are you kidding me it was this it, it was this easy all the time i went through the whole of university with people saying oh journalism is really hard to get into oh you have to be so good at writing you don't you really don't <laughs> you don't oh my gosh like it's it's i mean you just have can you string a sentence together yeah you're in come in we need the content mills are are, are grinding away and they need someone to they you need we need someone to work the content loom as long as you don't mind inhaling fibers and uh, uh yeah i'm not going to continue that metaphor because it's uh no, it's not it's it's tasteless but look the point my 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 point being um i ended up 
you know, I, I, I kind of, I, I, I thought I didn't want to write. I didn't want the whole thing to be opiniony, but I just kind of knew that this strange sort of thing happens when you're writing a non-fiction book where, where you start to realise that there's a whole world out there of experts and information and adventures and you can kind of go on them you can go I'm going to go on a research trip today and you go and you maybe you email somebody who runs a play I, I mean um, when I was right I mean it happens with fiction as well when I was writing the honours I think I've talked about this on the show before but I I went and had a, a shooting lesson and I found a local club and I was like kind of come and fire a shotgun please and they yeah they were like yeah and i went and an old gamekeeper an old norfolk gamekeeper perfectly for the book um took me out into the woods and gave me a a shotgun lesson with an over under double barrel shotgun and his mate noly up on the hill uh pulling the pulling the clay pigeon releaser firing clay pigeons which are like that kind of like massive vinyl records really shattering as i shot at them very interesting and useful piece of but you just kind of realize oh like it, it it's one of those things where as much as i say it's important not to kind of get to attach to the identity of writer or author or heaven forbid artiste but but realizing giving yourself permission to kind of approach someone as if this is your job and go I'm trying to write something about subject A you work in subject A would you be willing to speak to me is oh my gosh like it opens so many doors and it makes the whole well to me at least it makes the whole of the world suddenly seem sort of porous with possibility and adventure when you realize you're allowed to do stuff when you realise you're allowed to approach someone who you admire or like or you're interested in their work, you can just email them and go, Hi, I would love to speak to you about subject X that you are sort of tangentially related, your work is tangentially related to. Now, those people might ignore you, but it's surprising how often they don't. And then you're chatting to them. And then like so much of my opinions about writing and my understanding of the world even has been has actually secretly formed this kind of like a, a agglutination of the conversations I've had on this this very podcast with people I I, I I don't sort of try and say it to guests while I'm interviewing them because I think it would creep them out but the amount I sort of learn from talking to people that later, without even realising it, I've just sort of amoeba-like absorbed into my worldview. And then I'll be talking and I'll sort of very enthusiastically opine on a subject and explain the way something is to somebody else. As if it's my pet philosophy, when actually I realise later, I've, I've sort of just cobbled it together from a series of things that other authors or writers or 
psychologists have said to me on this show where they, they've said something I've gone well yeah and then and then that becomes my <laughs> becomes my opinion because I'm just I, I'm just like a little piece of play-doh that you can just stamp whatever you think no it's not quite that but I, I do I sort of I've learned so much from talking to people and you sound very sort of I sound very earnest and a bit fake sometimes I fear saying that it's like oh god I appreciate you so much but I do mean it whether you think that I'm overestimating people or not is up to you but that's how I feel about it and that's the really exciting thing about writing non-fiction to me particularly I, I think there's a it's true to a certain extent for fiction as well if you do research around it but especially with like non-fiction I, and especially with writing coward I just it was just nuts to me how there's this whole world of research that I could go and with the internet now I could just read academic papers and re and like go down like a rabbit hole of links and citations and and then you read a paper and then you're like what does this mean what what's a I'm reading a, like the neural correlates of anxiety and rats what's a what's going on here what, okay what, what does this terminology mean and then you're reading another paper and it hey, was it's about it's looking at the sort of bold response and and then it, it's a area of interest study what does that mean what's the fuck's a voxel uh not uh, that's a v-o-x-e-l not a voxel the the car i don't know what one of those is but like you know you, you and then you have to learn about that and then you and then and then it's like well do i do i know what a neuron is really push come to shove because i could probably just talk about neurons in my book and and, and mention them and say well this is when you know the resting the resting potential of a membrane and a neuron or whatever i could i could probably like just allude to terms like that and, and chuck them out and no one would be able to step in and go most readers would not recognize whether i was using them correctly or whether i was just making a little word salad to sound authoritative because you can just broadly gesture towards whole classes of sort of technical words can't you you can you can just go here is a a, a sort of lexical set of scientific sciencey words you can do a bit of science theatre. You have some end notes. You can see some little footnotes. I've, 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 here's, here's some studies that I've looked at. So you, you, and they're peer-reviewed. And then you can say, oh, look, I looked at a meta-analysis. And uh, it found a large effect size. It was highly significant in the... And, you know, I, I, I can do all that. And I think most readers would just sort of accept that I sounded authoritative because I was... Bring, but but, but what, I, what I wanted was if someone said to me, Tim, you've talked about like the some sort of you've talked about genetics and potential genetic the ways people have looked at the potential sort of like genetic predispositions towards anxiety or con genetic contributions towards anxiety. What's an allele? And and and. Uh, you know, go and explain explain to me what DNA stands for, and and I and, and if I haven't looked that stuff up right, then just the entire sort of Truman Show like pretense 
of scholarship falls apart because I'm basically in that situation like bullshitting right like uh, like like and oh like in, in any I, I would say like with any researcher that i spoke to in any anxiety field it is definitely true to say that um there'll be a point where they'll say i don't know in fact i would say that's one of the most that a red flag for me if i'm speaking to anyone who purports to be a researcher or a scientist is 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 if they only give definitive exhaustive black and white answers to every question that you ask in an area like anxiety covers such a range of fields there's the kind of psychological component you know like the, com the content of your thoughts and how you think about yourself your self-image you know the, the the things that you say to yourself um how you interpret things about other people your uh mental schemas you know the frameworks or paradigms or lenses through which you see the world that's one area right that's the like a kind of psychological area of it then there's the then there's a kind of biological pharmacological area of it which encompasses everything from sort of like neuroscience and genetics uh through to sort of microbiology and the gut through to exercise and things like hormones and um your body's stress response and um you know adrenaline and all of those things you know diet you know, all of those areas to do with the fact that we do live in these kind of like weird meat robots and anxiety has all these different physiological correlates right and our brain has to send little electrical signals along the synapses to you know that that's you know it's anything that we think any of those psychological things are instantiated within a brain and a body and a heart and you know uh, there's a hormone cascade and all of that stuff happens right we know we know that we live in a physical body so there's that aspect to it and then there's a the fact that we don't have thoughts and we don't exist in a body in isolation we exist within a society so then there's a societal elements of anxiety and that can be everything from sort of vectors of marginalization and oppression that affect people and just the conditions you find yourself in like if you're in a war zone clearly that's going to contribute to anxiety in a way that being nice and safe doesn't uh you know your life experience uh how we learn sort of anxious styles from other people around us um the language that we learn for anxiety social conceptions of what is and isn't acceptable all of these things and and, and to be an expert in every single area like you can have studied genetics all your life and there's no particular reason why you should be an expert on sports science or know a great deal about research on the intersection of theology and psychological well-being right and it would be kind of ridiculous to expect that of someone so for anyone that you speak to 
you know, if someone is a therapist who's spent 40 years sitting down with people day in, day out, talking to them about anxiety, they're specialised in panic disorders and anxiety, right? They're going to have great insight in that one field, in that kind of interpersonal, you know, what these people tend to think about themselves, what they've been through, maybe. They're going to have a very... They're going to have some great insights, theoretically, um, from that context. But it doesn't mean that they know anything particularly about neuroscience that they haven't read in a sort of, uh, you know, just a broad kind of like pop psychology book. They doesn't, they're not necessarily, you know, in any way qualified in that area. Um, they don't necessarily know anything about sports science. They may have picked stuff up because of their, you know, because they have a professional interest in the field. But, but you're always, 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 always dealing with people who at some stage are going to have to get to a point where they say, I don't know. And to me, like, it's just, it was just really fascinating. I, I think what I'm kind of coming back to here is that you get to go and speak to lots of different people when you're writing nonfiction and, and, and take that back. And at some stage, this is the thing that I think I've never heard anyone talk about about writing nonfiction and maybe it's just me but also the other really exciting thing is if you're covering an area like anxiety um you know a big area and i think this would be true of lots of topics at some point during the writing there's a shift where you it's not like you go from being a beginner to being a super expert but just the fact that you've spoken to so many people across so many disciplines means now I'm talking to somebody, you know, whose background's in, in like psychiatry and pulmonary biology or something, which I did, you know, and I spoke to a cardiologist as well. And But you, you speak to somebody in, 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 in one field and you've spoken to like all these people in adjacent fields and it's not like you're now an expert in those other fields but but you can kind of communicate what you were told by experts in those fields to this other expert in a field in a field and you know a bit more than them because you've just spoken to sort of the relevant experts and so you're able to sort of bring information across the different borders of different disciplines and people are genuinely interested to you go, oh, that because that does make me think of. It's funny you should mention that because I was just talking to such and such, and they said, and it's not like you're name dropping. I think it's the genuinely you mention something, and suddenly you can tell people, you can give people a little bit of sort of the word from across the different disciplines, and it's kind of exciting. I don't know, I don't know. It's just like suddenly you feel a bit like you're. A, it, there's a moment where you're able to tell a researcher something they didn't know that I think is quite thrilling and makes you think you might be onto something. Because you're like, of course, no, because people know their field, but they don't necessarily know outside that. And, and that's one of the lovely things about about doing the writing. Anyway, I, I, I you know, we pitched the first chapter. Maybe, was it the first chapter? Maybe I wrote the first three, I can't remember. And a, and a whole... And, and the whole, uh, whole the whole chapter list, and and then it got picked up, and I had to write it. So that's how I ended up writing Coward, and it's coming out in May. Um, the process was really hard. Um, 
uh, I I I actually thought at one point I wasn't going to be able to write it. Like I do, I I did a lot of research without really writing a stroke or writing very little, and just doing interview after interview after interview and reading and reading and reading. And and one thing I might go back and sort of tell myself, and one thing I wish I'd done more with this new the new book I'm working on, and something I really would like to get better at is just making notes. Oh my gosh, like notes are such a gift. And I, for some reason, I just don't do it. And I imagine that I'm going to remember stuff. And I think just, I, I, I do sort of dump research into a kind of big folder marked research, you know, relevant articles and stuff like that. And I, that does help a bit. But I think just getting to that stage where you have a word file or something just marked notes and you just note down like you, you see a quotation that's interesting to you put it in there you read an article that is relevant to what you're talking about maybe pull one kind of like money quote out of it and put the link and put it into that note file you could do this with fiction as well it's just as relevant and just collect this thing it i i have always about a billion tabs open in my browser and i think and and then what inevitably happens is my compute my laptop at some stage just crashes and then when it comes up I've lost all those tabs and 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 it probably crashed because I had so many tabs open to begin with but I just think it's worth noting these things down and and cuz now you know I think it's it's why I sometimes get to this point where I go oh shit like have I think I did what did I think I did a load of research but I've actually forgotten it already cuz I actually can't keep a lot of stuff in my head for a long period of time like even with the anxiety stuff for coward it's a bit like trying to hold a sort of drinks order in your head when you work behind a bar you'll keep it in your head quite a complicated one for exactly as long as you need to but the moment you've handed the drinks over and they've given you the money it goes like you just drop it and i think that's how it is with me and writing books is like as soon as i finish writing the book quite a lot of the information that was pertinent to writing the book just falls away but anyway i i i'm you know so when i go on tour if i do any readings from the book then i'm gonna have to reread it so i remember what i wrote and what i think about the subject and i probably know more than i'm giving myself credit for because you kind of forget that not everyone has all that stuff in their head you just get used to having it there and then you feel you feel like i, I think the other a big experience I've had of writing nonfiction is that the more I write on a subject and the more I read about the subject, the less like I feel I know because I start. So this, so this is actually this is like a key thing about the the arc of writing Coward is I sat down to pitch it, going, and I know a lot about anxiety. Like I've had panic attacks for over a decade. Like every week and sometimes like multiple times a day i've had so much anxiety i've been to therapy i've done meds i've read so much about it to try and get well i've got a fairly keen interest in pop psych i did a psychology a level you know i i know i wrote my dissertation on the anti-psychiatry moment i know a thing or two about psychology you'd be surprised i've listened to a few podcasts i've uh, read a few uh, long form articles uh, and it turns out that just sort of the knowledge you've acquired 
through a mixture of sort of rumours and articles that were forwarded to you in the form of physical newspaper clippings by your nan is not a medical degree <laughs> it turns out turns out like some of those things are wrong uh it turns out that actually a lot of what i thought i knew about neuroscience and psychology and what i picked up from ted talks was inaccurate often to the point of being utter bollocks and the more i read the more I realised that a lot of the kind of quite cute little stories that I thought I knew and that I would con confidently recite as gospel truth to other people about how the brain works, about how anxiety works, about what is an effective treatment. Oh, was horse shit. It was just nonsense. It was, it was not true. And... Um, I thought I was just going to kind of, sp I, I'm, okay, so we're really getting to it now. Like I, I thought I was going to speak to a bunch of researchers just to essentially have them sign off on what I already knew. I thought I was going to speak to the researchers and go, it's like this, isn't it? And they'd go, wow, well, it sounds like you've really done your research, Tim Clare. That's right. And, and, and they're and I'd get like a couple of quotes off them that would just sort of burnish my own soft authority on the topic of anxiety. And I'd go, you know, noted neuroscientist such and such or, you know, uh, it's, you know, whatever field they were in agreed. And they said... Blur, blah, blur. They they didn't agree. They said, no, Tim, that's wrong. In fact, quite a lot of the interviews I did, at least initially, just involved them sort of patiently disabusing me of, of, of multiple layperson canards that I'd picked up from years of just of thinking that you know an article by a newspaper's health correspondent was was like definitely was was like just definitely true and accurate and contained no mistakes and also that the things that felt to me like I should be in favour of, that like ideologically and in terms of what I wanted to be true, I should like, um, were and must be. And that the only reason anyone would evince any scepticism towards them would be because they had it in for them sort of politically, rather than it still being an open question. Right? Like... Because we all want to be able to have access to like a new and urgent and secret piece of information. And we and, and no one really wants to be told oh, all this insider knowledge that you've sort of accrued over years on your area 
is is bollocks right like i, I want to read a book and get like anecdotes and cool little nuggets from it that i can then just whop out onto the table at dinner parties and say look at that isn't that an interesting little little tidbit of of inf that's what i call info because i'm so busy isn't that, isn't that a isn't that an interesting factoid about your old brain about your old uh, about the uh, squashy pilot in that cockpit of bone up there that we're all enthusiastic end users of eh i know a few things about the old uh, neuroscience and and I, and I didn't it was it was bollocks it was it was bollocks it was i'd been confidently just spouting like shit for ages and so a lot of the book is you know is is about sort of scraping away just the a crude lime scale of bad science to try and get at some stuff we can say with like confidence and and I don't think the publishing industry has ever been particularly helpful around that because books are commissioned, edited and published by people who have probably, for the most part, never read a single peer-reviewed academic paper in the field of medicine in their in- entire life. Which is understandable, but it just means they're not qualified to judge whether those books are saying something worthwhile or whether they're total bollocks. And, you know, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll have seen me sort of boosting a few people talking about some books that have failed that test, really. And And of course, there are books about, I suppose, like totally... Well, areas that we would not, con- I don't want to, I don't want to be, I don't want to be, I don't want to be sort of sneering about things like horoscopes. But I think at least when a book comes out that's about horoscopes, for example, there is no real air about it that its truth claims are sort of grounded in scientific empiricism, right? Like, they're the, it, I, I think most people who engage with horoscopes either do so as part of a sort of belief system and system of faith. Now, if you believe something on a kind of faith level, you're explicitly saying, look, I'm not saying like the whole point that there has to be a leap leap of faith here is that I don't think you can find the evidence for it in just sort of materialistic sort of empiricist sort of evidence-based like it, it has to be a faith-based thing because you won't find evidence for it and if you, if, if you think that's a reasonable way to live your life and, and you want to do that that's fine the claim you're making is not here's the evidence you're saying i believe this so that's fine and i think there's some people who just engage in them in a kind of agnostic way or because it's quite fun or because it's nice to think about and I think that's fine as well. I think those kind of books are so clearly delineated from scientific work that it's not hugely harmful. I, I think what I feel uncomfortable with are 
a lot of books in what is generally these days thought of as the smart thinking genre which i have a horrible feeling i think coward might appear in in that section of the bookshop i think waterstones has a smart thinking section and i I wouldn't be surprised if coward appears there i don't know where it's going to be shelved um i i I just think that's it's not i hate the label smart thinking i'm not turning my nose up at it but there's just so much bad science that appears in that section of just like this would never fly at a conference i could not present this at as a paper, the the, the the conclusions I'm presenting here in front of my peers without getting laughed off, the, without getting just tomatoes thrown at me. I mean, of course, they probably wouldn't be like that, but, you know, I, I couldn't get this past actual other experts in the field if I was presenting this on an academic level. But I don't have to do that because, hey, this is just a fun little book. And I think some of the worst sort of some of the worst crimes against psychology, some of the poorest studies, some of the cases of you know, and there's this thing in psychology called the replication crisis, where a lot of very famous studies are now turning out to not really hold up when people try to replicate the results; they don't hold up. Uh, and then a bunch of studies that are actual academic fraud where it appears that the results were faked or manipulated in some way or just that the original study where it's not out and out fraud where the original study design was so poor that you can't really draw the conclusions that they drew from the study but creating a popular book around an interesting surprising counterintuitive conclusion um, is a great way to get round that because then you don't have to be able to replicate it across a bunch of different populations with reasonable sample sizes and with different teams working on it you don't have to do that you can just put it in a book go and do a ted talk but like surround it with a few jokes a few anecdotes and and and, and kind of talk about how hey we don't want to you know maybe talk about yourself in terms of being a you know you're a little bit of a maverick Say that, you know, allude to there being some... You can get in front of the story and allude to there being some pushback by going, people don't want to hear this. I'm a little bit of an academic maverick. You know, I believe in not just everything being decided within the stuffy boardrooms of academia, but I go out there and I I look for ways to apply this. And I get paid loads for speaking engagements. I mean, that's... And, you know, I I can see as an academic, like, the... There's a lot of pressures on you as a researcher and if you can just circumvent the usual systems and get big private donors to give you a wadge of money because you did an hour-long talk and they thought you were funny and compelling and your research confirmed something they already believed like you know you know the key determinant of success is character if that's like what your research is sort of about but also like tacitly assuming right but if, if that's what your research if that's the foundation of your research then all your results that you return are gonna 
are going to have a, a surprising number of them, I think, are probably going to endorse that, right? Like it turns out, oh, it turns out all the experiments I came up with to test this. So more or less confirmed what I suspected. Then you'll find donors who want to pay for that because there'll be lots of private schools who go, oh, like, yeah, I, you know, if you're an expensive fee paying school, wouldn't you want, you know, they 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 love, they love that shit. Let's pay this psychologist to come in and create a program with us. You, you, does it does it matter that the work is sort of not very well evidenced? Not if you not if you're being paid for it. You don't you don't need to go through the whole system of checks and balances and peer review. In the end, you can have very shoddy evidence. But if the people who are deciding whether they want to give you money are not trained in discerning whether your claims are credible you don't have to then you, you you can completely sidestep the whole basis of like the scientific method right and and of course i'm not really i'm not really outside of this either am i because i'm not not only am i not a doctor or a, a professional researcher but of course i want to write a book that's compelling and interesting and it's very difficult because like quite a lot of revelations from pieces of psych psychological research and stuff they make cool little stories and it seems almost sort of mean-spirited and pedantic to point out their flaws you know the for a while on the internet the absolute worst thing you could be in progressive space was you know to mansplain something to push the these sort of metaphorical glasses up your nose and say uh, well actually actually it's not quite as simple as that like the person doing that is always a sort of mean-spirited pedantic scold and it's always done in a spirit of showboating your intellectual superiority like it like it's always an attack to say that isn't quite true actually right it it is just sort of being snooty and snide and difficult and the problem is that like that's what's and also it doesn't help that a lot of like prominent skeptics were just absolute pricks as well like it doesn't help that like richard dawkins set himself up and sort of gathered people around him as like i'm a you know a difficult to fool skeptic who's gonna like point out some flaws in religion and and and, and did you know like pointed out some ways in which, you know, like right-wing and fundamentalist Christians couldn't back up a lot of their claims. And, and, and I think Richard Dawkins, you know, at one point, I think sometimes people forget this now, but now he's gone on his sort of like dark transformation into Darth Dawkins. People forget that, like, there was a time, you know, when George W. Bush was in power, when there was this great sort of, there was, there was this huge rush of right-wing sort of fundamentalist evangelical Christianity that was, that was, you know, incredibly homophobic, incredibly misogynistic, um, inc incredibly anti-science, was, you know, pushing a lot of creationism, and was pushing a lot of wars on the basis that, you know, God was on their side and all of these kind of things. And 
and that there were at least you know some skeptics who were just talking about were pushing back against this idea that well that god existed and and, and you know that it they it were pushing back against anti-intellectualism and against the sort of tyranny of uh like fundamentalist beliefs and and that that seemed welcome and refreshing at the time but then richard dawkins just i i i think just just spent too much time marinating in the uh in the musky aroma of his own farts and um, although the signs may have always been there I, I wasn't a big Dawkins watcher I, I, I saw him talk at um, at the Hay Festival years ago and he was very entertaining and didn't say anything <laughs> obviously uh, bigoted at the time it, did, did that, it never came up but then he sort of slid more into just out and out just, just, just like really just islamophobic stuff that were just very broad brush just attacking anyone of faith as stupid and there's always there was always like a an edge with a lot of the skeptics who all who would sort of by and large the people who were promoted to kind of like head skeptic during that skepticism movement were all white white straight men but um there was there was always like a haughtiness to it like that people who believed in people who had who were had a faith were dim and naive and i think it's sort of very easy when you have sort of frothing uh when you have when you have fundamentalists you know when you have people committing terrorist atrocities or when you have people like uh when you when you have people you know saying that homosexuality is a sin and they're protesting against that that there's they're just such grotesque or when people are saying you know they're creationists and they're saying that the evolution is a lie which i i think was really sort of how richard dawkins you know given his background that's was his entry point to a lot of this discussion as well it's very easy to i think feel like you're kind of punching up by calling those people idiots right because they're genuinely advocating against advocating against things like women's right to sort of safe legal abortion for example or they're advocating against children's right to uh be taught about evolution and basic science or they're taught they're against gay people's right to just exist at all or have access to any basic human dignities let alone thrive and be valued and uh, you know have positions in schools and in government and 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 just be you know valued and lifted up as amazing people who are part of the human race who deserve to thrive and be super happy like just not even that it's just about not existing right and not existing in the army like it's easy to to just call those people idiots and you know fundamentalists and and feel like you're punching up and the problem is that after a while you feel like you're on the right side of history and you don't i'm imagining you don't think too hard about what you're saying and then 
those people be you know and and then they're just saying some islamophobic and transphobic things and and going i'm just an empiricist i just care about the facts so don't come attacking i can't you it's absurd to attack me and actually the only people who ever have called me out before have been bigots so therefore these people attacking me now must be bigots and yeah you know you know how it you know how it went and i think that's the problem skepticism has had a bad rap because a load of people who call themselves skeptics have been total bellends um and and then the right has sort of appropriated the idea of skepticism as a sort of sort of play acted that they're interested in it so there's you know been people like 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 just a supreme bellend and 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 just surprisingly thick guys like ben shapiro who sort of tried to make hay with his phrase the facts don't care about your feelings despite the fact he is explicitly like a a man of faith like he has a religion so which is not which which relies by definition on not having a solid evidence base for it right but also because he like comes out with such manifest bollocks and and, and such a, a a childishly simplistic comprehension of global politics global geopolitics how law enforcement works um the i i mean it would be generous to say he's being disingenuous to make a rhetorical point i i just i've never seen evidence that he's that clever i think you know you're often dealing with people who are genuinely too thick to parse jordan peterson as well is just someone who has some of the furniture of intellectual intellectualism sort of arranged in his drawing room but is too thick to understand quite a lot of the stuff that he deals with like a lot of people will go well he's very intelligent but he's kind of like driven by ideology that that sometimes uh blinds him to certain realities no i think he has i've listened to him talk and it, it, it it's like hearing someone with it like as uh, like with aphasia after a, a stroke like he's using words in a way that doesn't align with what they mean like i'm not stupid right and i know what i sound like when i have not done the essay i've not done the reading for the class and i'm just trying to gesture towards broad concepts to cover that up and that's what he sounds like he he he's talked i mean he's and the thing is whenever he touches on an area that i know something about like psychology like research around psychedelics for example 
I know one, he has definitely not read the papers. He's only read su- summaries of them. And two, he doesn't understand what the fuck he's talking about. Like he just genuinely gets stuff like factually wrong. And I know for most of the audience, they can't discern that. But, and, and that's what this kind of pseudo intellectualism always relies on. Right. It always relies on it, 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 it by, by definition, it relies on you just sort of taking enough of a spread from different areas and i know this because i've done it myself you you know that if you spread yourself wide enough if you're an eclecticist there is no one in your audience who can possibly have knowledge of all the areas that you're referring to so you can appear to be authoritative because no one can check your working because nobody has that broader range of, and so you you just make all these references and it sounds like you know, these all represent the tip of the intellectual iceberg. And actually, I could go into this topic for hours, but I'm not going to. But let me just allude to the research around it, which, of course, I know in detail. Well, no, you don't. No, you don't. Because I know the moment that it's an area that I know about, that you're talking just, it's just, it's just such utter claptrap. But like most of his audience are not, uh, you know, are not experts in all those areas. And so they don't, realize when someone is just cosplaying as an intellectual for people who i don't want to say he's like a he is like the thick person's intellectual but i don't want to say that in case you're listening and you've gone oh he seemed quite smart to me he's certainly quite articulate and i think for most people like oral fluency is the clearest heuristic externally we have to gauge someone's intellectual capacity right someone's ability to string words together i think we often take as a good proxy for intelligence but it's not (laughs) it's not and uh it's easy to sound authoritative if you commit to, to to something and say, this is definitely this. Because, cool, that person's very confident. They must know what they're talking about. No, no, no. Almost always scientists and actual academics and people who know the area know enough to know. The most common phrase in academic research that you'll see in sort of medicine and th- fields like that. So common that it has... Several journals have banned it from being used in papers. Is more research is needed. Now, of course, everyone's got a little bit of a working, uh, you know, a little bit of a professional interest in that being true. Because if they said, oh, no, this is kind of wrapped up now, no more research is needed, they'd have no job. But just the understanding that, that, that science is done through a slow accumulation of data and we're always sort of placing any results within a constellation of existing ones and it's it's a slow it's a it's a slow ass process uh science that's my that's my scientific take on it that it's it's a, it's it's a frustrating and often you know there are dramatic moments but often especially with psychology and trying to make broad statements about humans i mean when we do things like psychiatry and psychology it it shades into philosophy in fact you know psychology the field of psychology really grew out of philosophy and a lot of you know a a lot of the basis of it um comes out of uh some of it you know rises out of medicine 
um but and you know neurology and areas like that but but a lot of it comes out of philosophy departments and that's not you know and you know i hear i've heard spoken to doctors who've sort of openly kind of sneered at psychology you know it's not a saying it's not a science uh but at some stage all science has to intersect with philosophy at some level we you know you've got to be we're we're asking difficult questions like what is a thought like what what what's what are good and bad are there good are there good and bad emotions can we make people feel better who who are we and who should we be if anything you know like those are if you if you don't at least consider you can pretend that you those aren't considerations when you're doing a piece of psychological or neuroscience or psychiatric research but um if you are it's just because you've already made those decisions and then you're pretending you haven't made them but there's always that those choices going on in the background um anyway so you know the book i wrote to oh, you know and it's why i need a book to i've got all of these thoughts like hammering around in my head and i tr try and get them down to their essence and then i get an editor with me and, and we go through it and we try and pare it down and, and really it's the story of me meeting all these researchers and trying out a lot of these paradigms and treatments on myself in whatever capacity i could sometimes a very improvised diy version of, of the treatment uh, and where it took me and it was a hard book to write there were points during the writing where i genuinely felt suicidal where my mental health got worse not better i guess when you'd like really try to do something and you might have had this experience when you sit down to try and write a book and i've said this on the show before but i've never felt less like a writer than when i'm sitting down to try and write something because that's where you really test the assumptions that you've got in your head and i never felt sort of more worried about my mental health than when i was trying to fix it and it had you know and it was project status and i was trying proper interventions because <laughs> you do kind of think if this doesn't work i'm fucked whereas kind of do you know what i mean like whereas if you're just kind of arsing around And you haven't done of and, and that's still to come. If you're like, I'm going to start my diet next week, but ne uh, then you might feel quite confident about your ability to lose weight while you eat a muffin, because you kind of go, well, yeah, but I know I've got this coming up. But then when you start changing your diet for the better, you know, and you're and, and you're you're making these changes, and you feel hungry, and you feel like crap, and you feel low energy ironically that's the point where you might feel less confident about your ability to change your health habits for the better because you're like no now i'm here and i'm trying to do it and, it and it's horribly hard whereas when i still had it to come it felt like something i could do now i'm doing it rather than feeling more optimistic because i'm like look i've actually started i've taken the first step you think i can't do this and i thought maybe i'm 
unfixable. Maybe I'm permanently broken. You know, you read the stats for different anxiety treatments and, you know, if something was, if, if, if a treatment was just absolutely spectacularly successful, as, as like, some of the uh, interventions for, like, phobias tend to be, like, pretty well-evidenced, pretty good. Like, we have got pretty good interventions for phobia. Like, if you have a single stimulus phobia, like you're afraid of spiders or heights, we've got some pretty tried-and-tested interventions that can help you a lot if you are prepared to do them and stick with them. If you can stick... And, and that maybe skews uh, some of the stats a little bit. You have to look maybe at more intention-to-treat stats to make sure... You know, if, if, if some people get put on a programme and they quit the programme before completing the work, then you need to make sure that any study includes those people who quit. Because otherwise you'll only keep getting the people who stayed on and you might say well well you can't include people who never did the treatment how could they possibly get better yeah but if they quit because the treatment was too unpleasant or stressful or difficult for them they might also be the people who had the worst instances of phobia in which case you're going to skew the results if only the people with the easiest to treat phobias are also the most likely to complete the treatment also if people don't complete the treatment because it's too hard or unpleasant or uh, onerous they are not getting treated right you can't say well they don't count uh, that that's that's part of the problem of implementation and and dissemination right if people won't do the treatment because it's too horrible it's it, it doesn't work as a treatment anyway but but all of that into account I, I think sort of the figures don't quote me on this it's in the book the proper figures but I think it's like something like two-thirds of people who undergo those you know a proper full session of cbt for full a full not session but a full um program of cbt sessions uh, of uh for a phobia a single stimulus phobia um significantly recover from it you know so it shows significant improvement that's still a third of people one in every three who don't right now i can't remember the exact figures i might be, be be wrong on that exactly but it's you know it's still a load a load of people who do not improve and and, and you just go oh well maybe i'm just one of those actually that actually massive group you know the same with sort of for and for like normal depression normal depression obviously it's grim but like major depression or anxiety if someone has got like access to CBT and meds, if they take both meds and they do CBT after eight weeks, I think, you know, you're most likely with most cohorts after eight weeks, 75% of those people are probably going to be better. Or, or they're going to have a, they're going to have had a significant improvement in symptoms after eight weeks. Most studies kind of that's where we're kind of at at the moment. Still, one in four people who have gone and done therapy, who've taken, who, who've taken medication as well, and who aren't any better. 
And you just go, maybe that's me. That's a lot of people. You know, 100 people in a room, 25 of them wouldn't be better. It's a lot of people. And you just go, oh, that, all of these things where they go, look at this incredible... Like, if 75% of people can experience remission, that's, like, considered incredible. That's, like, genuinely brilliant. What a brilliant intervention. And, of course, for people who it does give a full... who do recover, those stats hide just a massive number of people who don't get well. And I thought, maybe that's me. Oh, well, that's just, that's just a lot. That's a, that's a life kind of ruined isn't it if you have to live your life and you can't get through the week without being pinned to the floor screaming with just genuine terror and you're supposed to be bringing up a preschooler you're scared to leave the house scared to really do anything and you've now gone to literally the most qualified people in the world i couldn't believe the level of people who spoke to me spoke to people you know spoke to researchers at princeton i spoke to easily the most well-known neuroscientist in the field of anxiety who's alive today i spoke to people across multiple different fields i I read over a thousand papers and i was like i have spoken to like easily the the world experts on dealing with this across multiple disciplines I, i could not have had spoke to the president of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. I, you know, I, I could not have had more experts weighing in. And I actually felt worse. And you go, you, oh no, you're fucked. And you've like really proven it. As all this has done, actually, is confirmed like how fucked you are. You know, like it's just, it's only emphasised that like no one can help you. Like the sum total of humanity's knowledge to date on anxiety (laughs) can't make you better. I mean, like it can, like a population level, like if you've got a large number of people, they can intervene on a bunch of them and probably make them, a lot of them feel better. But they can make an impact, but no, you're just one of the unlucky ones. (laughs) <laughs> oh shit this isn't the what am i i'm trying to write I, this can't be i'm trying to write a book on it like i can't can't end the book and go some of us are just shit munchers anyway bye like end of end book i mean oh, that wasn't my my primary concern although it was a concern wasn't just I, this can't be true. I've got to write a book. Like, I clearly, like, my primary concern was I feel sad. But, um, yeah, it's kind of nuts, though, right? Anyway, the book's about that. And th- things did turn out pretty good for me in the end. And it was life-changing. I was the writer and it was all about stuff I was interested in. But I think 
some of the people who've there's only been a few early readers it's just been sent out to a few special folk um but people have sent me some really touching things about reading it and enjoying it and it's it's all about that and the mess of that the final thing i want to say if you are still listening up until now is i'm i'm trying to the time of recording which is the is uh uh march the wednesday the 9th of march i'm gonna do a uk tour for the first two weeks of may if you're in the uk and you'd like me to come to where you are or somewhere near you and do a reading at your local bookshop at your organization at, you know maybe a lunchtime talk at your work maybe at your university um or maybe just like doing an event somewhere right like doing a thing um I did a tour 10 years ago with two amazing poets, Mark Grist, who's been on the show, and uh, Mixie, a, an MC, and he does poetry as well. And we did a tour around, we did we went around the UK going visiting poets' graves, and we did gigs along the way that people just offered us, and we stayed in people's houses, and we did all these gigs, and it was amazing. Um, and we did big gigs, and we did small gigs. We did two gigs in castles that we were offered, um, and I don't, you know, I, I'm, I'm not under any illusion that I've got the reach of, you know, like Mark and Mixie, I think, like really sweetened the pot for a lot of people because they're just, it was just, they're just so amazing. They are great. They're so, I, I know I sound like a suck up, but that, you know, they're two of my, they're, they're my two favourite performers to do shows with because they're just brilliant. And it was a joy to do that tour with them. Um, but it did make me realise like how nice it is to meet up with people. So I'd like to go around the UK. I would love to meet people do gigs and also do some stuff to do with anxiety you know like i've already spoken to some someone has like said do you want to like do a morning dip in near manchester we could go out and do swimming somewhere outside and we could invite people to come with us and i'm like yeah that sounds awesome so i'm going to be and i will post updates for this on my like website and on my social media as well but like um i'm going to do that I'm going to do a do a morning outdoors dip because some of that stuff is in the book and uh, maybe can talk to people about the book a little bit there. Um, someone else has asked, there's a couple of bookshops who've asked if I want to come in and do readings there. Yes, I would love to. There's a, someone's asked if I want to come and do like a, like a breathwork session with them. Yeah, cool. I, I I've, There's a whole section in the book on the a whole chapter on the science of, breathing and how that relates to anxiety and especially panic attacks so i, I you know i'm going to do that if you're based in the uk and in the first two weeks of march you'd like me to come to your area um to if there's like if you run events or you know a local bookshop that you can put me in touch with i'd love to hear about that if you've got an organization that i could come and read at that'd be great if you'd like to um, us to do something to do with anxiety maybe there's like a haunted house near you that you want to spend that we could spend the night in and i don't know do a seance or something i don't personally believe in ghosts but i'm respectful of people who do um but i am scared of them despite not believing in them um maybe there's a particularly high bridge that we could like walk across and experience uh that or i don't know i don't know i'm really open to like very quirky venues or offbeat things but if you would like me to come please drop me a line um the my address is in the show notes so you can also contact me through twitter or facebook but i'd love to hear from you um i'd love to come around and just like see people like i say i've got some like actual event events um with like different festivals and stuff that are going to be happening in those two weeks and i will be doing some stuff afterwards as well but 
I, I just if I, I you know it can only be in like in the UK. I, I can't go any further than that. But um, if you're a if you've got anything that you'd like to suggest, and you know I'm open to like small events as well. I'm not expecting like crowds of hundreds at, uh, at each event. If like there's something I go and it's like half a dozen people and we do a little lunchtime reading or something, I I I can chat about my book, and my experiences, and answer questions. I'd love to do that. Anyway, get in touch with me. My website the address that you can contact me through is in the show notes if you enjoy the show as well please do share it please do subscribe on itunes and or, or and or on soundcloud um share it on social media i really appreciate that um and if you'd like it to continue you can always show your support by um dropping me a few beans to my coffee page link in the show notes ko-fi.com forward slash tim clare and finally there is a link in the show notes to pre-order um coward the best way if you like what i've talked about if you're interested in what i'm doing at all the best best way you can support my work is to pre-order my new book that's it that is the show thank you for listening to me i did a ramble hope you found some of that interesting or enlightening Take care, and I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.